May we and all beings walk lightly on this earth. May we and all beings be free from anxiety, restlessness, and fear. May we and all beings feel safe enough to slow down, to sit down, and smile. Good morning again, everyone. Wonderful to see so many familiar faces, some new faces. Wonderful to see that one face is now feeling better. Welcome back, Daigen. We've missed you. And wonderful to hear so many familiar voices on Zoom. A Simple Life is the title of the talk today, or simplicity, if you're looking for just one word. It's part of our series on the engaged Buddhist precepts that's been ongoing for several weeks now. And this idea of living a simple life does show up in at least one of them. In the fifth precept, not amassing wealth while others live without means. It reads at the end, live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Focuses on a kind of material simplicity. It shows up in the seventh precept on not becoming too distracted or being lost in dispersions. We've talked often about the ways in which our calendars can be not simple. You have so many things to do that you're rushing from place to place. It shows up in yet another way in the 13th precept, this idea of not possessing anything that should belong to others. Your life can become rather full, rather complicated when you're stealing from people, not just that you're getting more stuff, but if you're a dishonest person stealing from other people, you probably have to craft some story to keep your image not that. More busyness to your life. I believe next week, Daigen will be talking about that precept in some detail. So come back for more. So it's important as part of this series that we're exploring on how do we bring our practice off of the cushion and into the world. And it's also a little personal for me. As some of you know, I'm priest training to be ordained next year sometime. And when that happens, I'll receive the precepts again, and I'll take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha again. But there are no additional vows that are required of me unless I choose to take them. In other Dharma centers, those who pursue this kind of path are required to take additional vows. So I've heard that Reb Anderson, if you wanted to priest train with him, you had to live with him for five years 
and during that time, you're not even ordained yet, take a vow of celibacy. I have friends who've done priest training at Great Vows and Monastery out in Oregon, and they have to take that vow as well. They also have to take a vow of obedience to their teacher. Neither of those vows are required of me. Obedience is not in the spirit of our practice here at Oan. Several reasons for that. Among them, it seems to me that our lineage founder, Kovanchino Roshi, something that's said about him so often is that he trusted people. You don't need to command someone or require them to take a vow of obedience if you trust them. But what does it mean to take a vow of simplicity? What does it mean to live a simple life? Sometimes when we give instructions for kinhin, we talk about walking so lightly on the ground that with every step, a lotus flower blooms behind you. It's a rather nice image, but what does it mean for us in our lives? No matter how much I tiptoe around the world, I'm pretty sure flowers aren't going to come up behind me. It also doesn't seem to me to be the kind of thing that's captured in certain minimalist movements that are popular in certain parts of society. I've heard about these things called like a time capsule wardrobe. All of your clothes could fit into a time capsule. Right. Having a really simple, small wardrobe. Some people say like no more than 40 pieces of clothing. That's it. And I find that ridiculous because apparently that includes socks. <laughs> you have like a week's worth of socks. You've already got 14 pieces. This is really hard. So what I'd like to do today is explore another way of thinking about simplicity and a simple life, offer a different kind of vision to you, one that might be still poetic in its own way, but doesn't involve restrictions on numbers of clothing. That just seems not quite the sort of thing I'm interested in. Part of priest training involves study of certain sutras and texts. And one of them is called the Genjo Koan. It comes from the founder of Soto Zen, Dogen Zenji. You probably heard that name if you've been around a bit. Dogen's name creeps up. It's supposed to be Dogen's explanation of Zen practice for the lay person which you might think makes it easy to understand, just talking to the person on the street. It's not, it's very difficult to understand because it's written in this beautifully poetic language. And so there are commentaries that are written offering interpretations of this text. And as Mado and I have been working through it together, I read a paragraph in a commentary that seemed like the right place to start for thinking about simplicity. And I'd like to share that paragraph with you now. 
this comes from Shohaku Okamura's Realizing Genjo Koan. Here's what Okamura writes. Until I was a teenager, at least, the basic message I received from the educational system and from society in general was, we are making the world better through the use of scientific knowledge and technology. But eventually people began to see that science and technology used in the service of human desires have caused many problems for people and for the natural world. We once thought that the human race was the most important part of a world in which everything belongs to us. Yet in truth, we are just a tiny part of nature. Human beings have finally begun to realize that we will perish if the natural environment perishes. We have begun to see that we share one life with nature and with all beings. In this way, society is awakening to the reality of interdependent origination, the truth that the Buddha taught. By correcting our views of the world, we can live naturally and wholesomely in harmony with all beings. This is the right view that the Buddha spoke of in the Eightfold Noble Path. And for Dogen, Zazen, seated meditation practice, is the pivotal point in our practice of changing our views. He saw that if we root our views in the reality of Zazen, we can become aware of the interdependence of all things, enabling us to live in accord with reality. This is a very simple yet profound and endless practice. There's a lot going on there in that one paragraph. But two things stand out to me. First is the emphasis on interconnectedness, that we're not separate from everything around us, that we exist in these wonderful intimate relations with all things. And second, that we're just a tiny part of nature, a tiny part of the whole world which does not mean that we are not important. It just means we're not all important in the way that we might think we are. And that if we recognize that we're just a tiny part and we can take our place Elsewhere, Dogen describes us as accoutrements, beautiful ceremonial adornments of the entire world in the 10 directions. We can live in harmony with all beings. I rather like this image, but it seems to me that this is not the way in which many of us, certainly myself, relate to the world all the time. 
a lot of the time, from my experience, we have what I've taken to calling a conqueror's mindset. We're going to go out into the world and we're going to conquer it. We're going to shape it. We're going to mold it in our image to our liking. And this happens in a variety of ways. Sometimes there's a literal conquering of nature that seems to happen. There are certain spaces in the world that you wouldn't know what they look like anymore without our presence. Some of you know I used to live in Southern California. I spent time in San Diego, a place that I now consider a concrete jungle. I hear that Dallas, Texas is much the same way, just sprawling concrete structures. Any beauty of the natural world that was there is hard to find. The human constructed world has taken over. Sometimes this, man, this mindset manifests in the hoarding of resources. People feel like there's not enough to go around and they have to get, get more. We saw this so clearly during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Everybody was buying toilet paper. Pallets of toilet paper. What do you need so much toilet paper for? I got to get it. There's not enough. Or hand sanitizer. Remember reading about a gentleman who had a garage full. He was selling it at a steep markup to people around him. Money, the accumulation of wealth. How many commas are in your bank account balance? Answer zero for me. But there's a feeling that if I have enough money, even if I don't have all the toilet paper or the hand sanitizer, I can probably get it. I can control what's happening around me in that way. It's a way I can exert influence over the environment. And still reputation is another way in which this mindset can manifest. And all of these, it seems to me, are ways in which we're trying to become powerful. Now, I don't know why it is that many people seem to behave in this way, but I know why I do at times. For me, the answer is simple, fear. I'm afraid. But if I have enough stuff or enough money or a good enough reputation, then maybe I can feel safe. I can feel protected. I can feel that everything will be okay come what may. This fear, I think, is a product of the way in which I at times relate to the world around me. I remember growing up being told that the world is a scary place. It's not enough stuff to go around. Everyone's out there getting theirs. You got to get yours. 
Other times I was told that the world is indifferent to my existence. It's not actively hostile trying to get rid of me as though I'm some disease that doesn't fit into the picture, but it's just hunks of matter sitting out there, doesn't really care about me one way or another, but it's certainly not out there trying to help me, trying to support me, not something I can live in harmony with. And if you orient towards the world in this way, as I sometimes do, it's natural that you're going to be afraid again. And you're going to try and find ways to protect yourself. So I'd like to suggest yet a third way of thinking about our relation to the world around us. Not one where it's actively hostile, not one where it's indifferent, but something else. And it starts with this idea that I mentioned a moment ago of taking our place. being a beautiful adornment of the entire world in the 10 directions. Taking our place, it seems to me, requires a fearlessness, a kind of genuine courage to accept that I'm just a tiny part of the whole and not be afraid of the fact that something might stomp me out of existence at any moment. A fearlessness born from thinking about the world in this way, that I am respected, that I am secure, that I am cared for within a loving reality that far from the world being hostile or indifferent to my existence, love is actually built into the order of reality. That the world actually is an inherently kind, generous and compassionate place. That instead of walking around, shoulders tense, fists clenched, always on the defensive. If I orient myself towards the world in this way, I might be able to let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. To open my hands and walk innocently as it says in the song of the Grassroof Hermitage, which we read today. I wonder what my life would be like if I oriented myself towards the world like this. It's a nice vision, I think. 
to think that the world is kind and compassionate. And so I'll be cared for and respected so I can have a kind of fearlessness and not need to go out and try and acquire all this stuff to feel protected. I can rest easy with my head covered and let all things be as they are. So I've been exploring this idea over the course of the week, preparing for this talk. And as I've been exploring this idea, a little voice continues to come up. This voice has come up so often that I've given it a name. And I call it the too cool teenager. Yeah. The world is a loving place and the tool, the too cool teenager pops up and goes, psh, psh, Tyson, get real, man. That's not how the world is. You're silly. You're naive. Look around you, man. Have you not realized there's a climate crisis? The world's on fire. Compassion is built into the very structure of reality. Get real, dude. You live in America, the most politically polarized country in the world. How can you possibly believe that? Psh. The two cool teenagers says. And I feel that. We hear a lot every day, all the time, about how scary the world is. So this is the question that I'd like to leave you with this morning. If you find this way of orienting towards the world attractive, something that you might like to explore, what would you say to someone who looks at you and says, get real? The world is cold and dark and nasty, brutish and short. It will be your existence. What might you say to this person? Thank you very much.